Hi, I'm Dr. Morbaja, astrodynamicist, space environmentalist, and associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Ken Eppens, founder and CEO of Orbit Guardians. Hi, my name is Eppens van der Veen. I'm head of strategy and managing director for OGB Venture Capital. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. I really love that international diplomacy piece. And I really love that space sustainability piece that I was doing at NORAD. And you know what I like? Hard policy problems. And so those three things, the center of that is AstroScale. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Kanigan, the founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm making good space companies better. I'm here with Charity Whedon of Astroscale US, and I want to plug this book for a minute before we get started. It is Space is Open for Business by Robert Jacobson. I received an advanced copy. That's the disclosure. Um, but that doesn't mean that I give a nice review just because somebody gives me something for free. I enjoyed that book. It was very thorough. Uh, it's, it kind of goes all over the place in many ways. But if you want to find out like what the deal is with the commercial space industry, which is very new, um, and how we got to where we are, what the pain points of the market are, that is a great book to start uh, with there that Robert has made. So, Charity, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah. So what we are going to talk about is this weird thing of debris cleanup, um, which people sort of understand, but nobody's actually ready to pay for. And there's this company called Astroscale that you work for that is uh, trying to be the company that does this picking up. And uh, I kind of want to zoom in, I guess, a little bit uh, um, from, from like defining the problem as you see it and then Astroscale's role in it and then your personal role as to what you're doing and the idea here is to give folks a picture of like what is going on in this part of the space universe and uh, and your role in it so let's start with i guess what is the problem that astroscale is trying to solve well i i wouldn't quite call space debris weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) i would call it a um a danger to all of us that is right in front of us and we have to do something about it uh, Astroscale is a unique company, and they are dedicated to space sustainability through many purposes and missions. I'm going to talk a lot about on-orbit services, because I really feel that active debris removal, end of life, uh, taking debris out, uh, out of the way, that's all part of the servicing infrastructure in space. That is what we're trying to build here, an ecosystem, a logistics chain, that we can use in space instead of hauling things up from Earth all the time. Um, so so that's, that's kind of the frame uh, for which Astroscale looks at space debris, is how do we keep space sustainable? Not, it, it, definitely environmentally, but as a business case, as a market for growth, um, to keep the, the interest, the public interest alive in space, because if you can't use it, no one's gonna be looking at the stars if you will. So I just want to frame our discussion on space debris in that manner of honor services. 
Awesome. And your role is Vice President of Global Space Policy at Astroscale US. So, and we'll, we'll look into that uh, a little more as to what it is. So, so I, I get the feeling then because you were talking about um, space sustainability, uh, the, the environment, the, the whole thing, as opposed to just, hey, here's this company, Astroscale, it wants to make some money, uh, an ecosystem, right? These words really stood out to me from what you were saying. And I got the impression that Astroscale is an evolutionary company, right? It's starting off in one shape or form. Uh, in a little bit, it's going to be adopting another thing where it's able to offer certain services, let's say. And then in the future, beyond that, there's uh, another level of this uh, orbital construction environment that you, you mentioned. Um, am I off base there? Is that kind of what it, it's like? What's your feedback on that? I'd like, I'd like that term, evolutionary and revolutionary. Um, you're right, evolutionary you know, many startups, they have great technical ideas, something they, they want to do, a mission in space. Um, Astroscale started with, we realized there was a problem on our hands. It was found in 2013. We set tests had happened. Iridium Cosmos had happened. Things were starting to pick up in the small satellite world. And so our founder and CEO, Nobu Okada, really took to this problem. So the company started trying to address a problem. And that's always good because you, you're looking at an actual problem to solve. You're building the technology, but you're also seeing what else is needed. You're not just there building tech in your garage. And so Astroscale is unique in that way of uh, looking at a problem that started out and then recognizing we can use this technology for a host of other applications. It's rendezvous and proximity operations. What can you do with that? And so that's how we're expanding. And you know that we, you know, we are now into the life extension business in geostationary orbit. We can do in situ SSA with the type of technology that we're building that started with a relevant and urgent problem to resolve. Okay. Now I, I've got the impression and, and you mentioned that, you know, the kind of the crazy guys building stuff in their garage as being one way of starting a company. In your case, you've kind of had to go out and, and get public opinion or even uh, administrative uh, opinion on your side as, hey, this is a problem that needs to be solved in that. How has that been? Um, it's been five years, right? Um, what, what accomplishments do you believe the Astroscale has had in that time? So this kind of creeps into how I um, tackle the policy problem. Mm. It's in four steps. The first step is awareness. Do people even know that there's an issue? And we're still finding there's still gaps in that. So you'll see us everywhere talking about this issue, public, uh, to the governments, around the world, to other industry partners. So awareness is first step. And then there's acceptance. Do they believe there's a problem? So you gotta show them the, the receipts, if you will. Show them the data. Uh, you know, so we collaborate quite a bit with academics um, and, uh, and other um, luminaries in the space situational awareness arena to make sure that uh, the stakeholders, whether they're politicians or industry themselves, uh, not only are aware of the problem, but they understand it is indeed a problem. Third step would be action. You want them to do something about it. And, and we're certainly doing something about it by providing um, docking plates and a service to uh, attach to the satellite should it become defunct in orbit or should it need uh, life extension. So um, the final step, which 
you know, sometimes it's needed, sometimes it's not. Action, sometimes it's the end, end game here, people actually doing something about it. But it might be a mandate, something like regulation and legislation that might be needed, international um, consensus on debris mitigation standards, for example. So that is kind of the final step. So we're working in all these four pillars, if you will, and they blend together. We're working around the world in them throughout you know, industry, public government. And uh, so just to get back to your question, the, you know, yes, people are aware, some accept, some are taking action, and yes, some are actually putting mandates in. All right, and, and now let's dig into some details here because uh, like say Chris Stott from Mansat just wrote recently uh, a LinkedIn article uh, where he said getting permission to do something is the most difficult thing to do in space um, from his perspective. And so here you are, like I talk every week to companies that want to be in the orbital debris cleanup business, right? So, but, but all they have is like an idea for a technology and they haven't got the oomph, they haven't got the grappling of the problem or the permission uh, from whoever like the regulatory or government agency folks are to touch the problem even. How has Astroscale gone ahead again over the last five years uh, of working on solving this problem of, of being allowed to go and approach these things? So I, I mean, first I want to say Chris Dot is always right. So uh -huh. <laughs> everyone to listen to Chris on this and he's, he's absolutely right. It's, it's sometimes the hardest thing to do is get that permission. And there's, um, as you understand, space is highly regulated. There's different angles of regulation here, especially in the US, the remote sensing angle, the spectrum angle, the launch angle. Um, other nations look at a, a more of a, a mission concept, but you still have to do the spectrum angle and launch angle. So um, I think it's complex because governments don't necessarily have the uh, experience in licensing uh, new commercial operators doing on-orbit debris removal or uh, on-orbit services for that matter. Uh, US now has it because MEV1 is up and, and operating. Uh, the UK, uh, we are actually uh, proceeding uh, with a mission license in the UK or requesting one. They have um, expertise in this because they did the remove debris kind of licensing as well. So it, it is a growing pain but we're also opening, wedging open that door to make it easier for folks to come in after and make this a more of a normal cadence of licensing and, and helping the governments understand uh, what is their authorization and continuing supervision um, role here. And I don't think that's been fully fleshed out either. Mm. So that's why it makes it hard because they haven't done this before. So you're gonna right. need a lot of interagency dialogue to under understand fully what's needed. Hmm. <laughs> Some of the investors that I talk to kind of get infuriated about the time that it takes for that interagency dialogue to happen. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. So uh, let's dig into you then. Um, as, as an individual, how did you get to become the vice president of global space policy uh, for this organization? You started out in Canada, much like myself, um, and ended up in the U.S. How did you do it? <laughs> what was that process like? You started off in the military? I did in the Royal Canadian Air Force. It's really a zigzag of a career. Um, and I have a very geeky analog to that is it's more like home and transfers. <laughs> as I as I did something different in each of those zigzags, 
it just kind of expanded my understanding and knowledge of the entire system. So I started off tracking submarines uh, in the open ocean, uh, begged for a space job um, in the Canadian Air Force, and they sent me to NORAD. And I was uh, one of the few officers that was assigned to the first space control squadron, uh, then uh, owned and operated by Air Force Base Command to be the deputy sensor manager for the US Space Surveillance Network. Um, after that, I continued doing space jobs, not navigation jobs, and was assigned to the Canadian Embassy in Washington, DC, where I was the assistant attache for air and space operations. Uh, this job was awesome. <laughs> As you imagine being a military diplomat in the US, building relationships and, and with key partners, the US, but also all our NATO allies here in the, in the DC area. Um, really, you know, eye-opening and enjoyable uh, that entire 23-year career. But it was time to, to leave and, and set out on my own. And so, and this is right when, you know, space startup boom, like Worldview was just announced, essentially. I'm like, 700 satellites, that's so many. Um, you know, how do, how, do I, how do I help this new thriving space industry? And so um, I joined the Satellite Industry Association as their the senior director of policy, working on essentially the U.S. space industry's interests um, across the board. So 40, 45 members, range of earth observation to defense contractors to communication satellite operators. So again, eye-opening. And that was when I really got an appreciation of, kind of the radio frequency piece of this, right? I, I knew there's remote sensing, I knew there's operations, um, but it was really the glue that holds us all together is the spectrum piece. So yeah, it was a very eye-opening experience there. I met Chris Blackerby, the, the chief operating officer for Astroscale, um, a couple of years later, and he, he told me about Astroscale, and I was like, you know what I want to do? I really love that international diplomacy piece, and I really love that space sustainability piece that I was doing at NORAD. And you know what I like? Hard policy problems. Uh, and so those three things, the center of that is Astroscale. So from then on, um, I started working with them first as a consultant and then came on full-time last year. Zigzag. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. So quite a road to get there. Um, but I like that you pulled out the, what you really like to do, right? Those, um, not just skill sets, because like everybody's got skill sets, but stuff you really like to talk about all day and, and the kind of people you wanted to work with. Uh, not everybody gets there and they kind of stay stuck sure. in certain jobs forever. So this is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to 
blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And <laughs> so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company, and that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that, and it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So... If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year. <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. So let's talk about your role then um, in the VP role. Some of these things you're looking at here, there's a list here, legislation, domestic policy, standards, best practices, regulations, and ooh, trends. <laughs> what, what does like, your, your typical day look like? Um, are there information sources that you consistently look at? Um, are, there, are there folks you end up seeing over and over again, which sort of we do in these Zoom meetings and that kind of thing, but uh, you know, people who you rely on, um, or, or are you kind of out there by yourself a lot of the time trying to figure out what's going to come up next and not seeing everything on the radar screen, I guess, and sort of going, well, I, I'm going to have to imagine that there's a thing out there in the future and go and create it or something. What, is it, what does it look like for you? Uh, so these days is a little different from the, the four days, if you will. <laughs> you know, um, first of all, we have a global policy team. Mm -hmm. This is one of the attributes of Scale, why we're so effective in policy and best practices and standards development. Um, we have a, a Japanese uh, space policy lead, a UK space policy lead, and I even have a very small team here uh, with the, um, a space policy analyst, uh, Luke Riesbeck, for, for those who know them. So um, really a, a super team of policy around the world tracking not just the debris issues, but just overall trends and the, like you said, the policy legislative best practices, uh, who's who, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that takes up 25% yeah. of my time of who do I need to talk to in the Space Force <laughs> about this issue? Like, you know, you're trying to um, understand, you know, who do we need to talk to in addition to what we should talk to them about? Um, 
So global policy team coordinating that by knowing what's happening in Asia, in Europe, and in North America, we can see where the, you know, where the flow of the river is going uh, towards um, a future kind of consensus on what is sustainable space practices. So that's one thing. Coordinating that is something that I do every day. Phone calls, all hours. <laughs> Hopefully not too early morning or not too late at night. The other thing that uh, we do as a global policy team is just trying to ingest the massive amount of information um, that's coming in. I found the past two, three years, you know, I, I, I had a handle on everything that's going on. I read space, space news. I read the you know, defense news. I read all your major news sources. Um, but today there's just so much mm. to ingest and to understand what and pick out what's important. And so there's a, there's a, and then long form and, and webcasts, like there's not enough hours in the day for me to track all the webcasts um, right now. So trying to digest as much as we possibly can. So we're informed when we go out and talk to the stakeholders and those stakeholders, that's will be another segment of what we do are governments uh, and industry and the public. So things like this, um, often do podcasts and events, webinar events, and, or just phone calls, right? Um, and, and then reaching out, staying in touch. Right now, it's really hard. Uh, you know, back, back when I was a diplomat, you know, you, just, you rub elbows, you go to a mm -hmm. cocktail party, you meet people like that. And the space industry is sort of like that as well. And you can't do that right now. So as someone who does government relations, um, how do you keep on track or on top of those relationships? And just a simple phone call or an email saying, how are you doing? Or, or I, I, I saw this article and mm. I have some questions, things like that, that helps. And then finally, probably the most important part is developing those positions for policy. What are our positions on honorable servicing regulation? What are our positions on debris mitigation? Uh, how about, um, Spectrum. How about like we have a probably a dozen topics that we're continually ingesting information on, developing an opinion, an informed opinion on, and then writing it out, and then getting out there and speaking on it. So there's probably four or five major things that I do in a day with the global policy team. Hmm. That sounds like fun, and thanks for sharing that with us because there's a lot of folks I'm sure who have like without hearing it from you, we would have no idea. Right, what, what that looks it's, like. <laughs> um, I do policy. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's much more than policy, right? It's right. like you listen. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's going to be peers that say policy is this, but I see it as a, a larger bucket of things. It's, hmm. it's, it's, it comes down to what are people even saying and thinking about an issue? That legislation, all, that, that's the mandate part. But what did they say in the speech? What are they writing about? Uh, you know, what are they talking to their peers about? So that's as important as those other parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not just the dry paper writing or reading or whatever, it's, it's the human relations, there we are. Yeah. Okay, there's a note here that you are the chair of something called Comstack. What is that? Um, it's got a meeting coming up very soon. Wow, in three days. Um, yeah. What is that about? Why is it sure. important? The FAA has a federal advisory committee called Comstack. That, rep that is called the Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee. It's been ongoing for 30 plus years. Uh, this is a committee developed of 
experts, uh, experienced uh, industry, um, NGO, and academics that provide inputs into the FAA as they make decisions. So the FAA has a real pipeline of information flowing from the industry. And as the, the chair, I help coordinate what are the things that the FAA is interested in hearing from us and help develop those positions, those recommendations back to the FAA. So um, I took over as a ComSec chair. Mike Gold uh, was the chair uh, before me. And uh, this spring we had our first meeting. It was more informational. On Monday's meeting, this is gonna be more recommendations and a working meeting. We're going to um, highlight some specifics that the FAA should consider and recommend, some thought process behind it, um, and, and see you know, what, is, what are the next items we should tackle as a, an advisory body, if you will. Okay, yeah, and that's pretty neat that uh, you're getting a chance to influence um, that, that body that way uh, and their policy thinking, so that's, that's cool. Um, let's move on to cislunar space. It's a, it's a big topic. Um, a lot of people have been talking about it. I've had a few people on the show who are looking at business uh, models in that area. How does sustainability work um, according to the AstroScale way in, in there? Well, I mean, we're not just about one orbit or two orbits and just, you know, narrowing our scope there. We're thinking about sustainability in space writ large. Okay, so if there is ongoing activity or a growing trend in activity in cislunar orbit or on the moon itself, we're going to pay attention to that. And I have to say I'm pleasantly surprised at the announcement this week, uh, I think it was yesterday by NASA administrator about, you know, commercializing, you know, resources, go get us 50 grams of lunar regolith, keep it there, we'll pick it up later. I think that is, you know, I just, you know, I don't know about you, but when you're a kid, you know, going to the moon or Mars was always 40 years away. That's the 40 year plan. That's a 40 year plan. Uh, at least that's what they told me at space camp. And here we are 40 years later and sometimes things just never change. Except I do see an actual change on activity in the cislunar environment. I do see that. Um, the bad side of that could be anywhere we go, we kind of trash it up, don't we? So with the power of foresight, what can we talk about now? Build those best practices, those sustainability practices, and make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes that we've done here on Earth and unfortunately in space as well. All right. Let's, let's finish up with this. And this is probably going to be a longer answer, um, and that's good. Uh, I want to hear more out of your head and into, into the sound. Um, Active debris removal, who's going to pay for it? Uh, that's, that's a question that has come up and frustrated many, many, many people who have a technological capability idea, but then, you know, where does it go from there? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, so that is probably the number one question that's asked. So um, I'm not surprised <laughs> that it's, it's asked here, it's asked everywhere, who pays for it, who pays for it? I'd like to turn that question on its head and say, we all pay <laughs> if we do nothing, right? So let's, let's work our way back from 
the optimal. And the optimal is a clean, clear orbit. If you are an operator with a thousand plus satellites, you probably want to minimize your risk, the risk of your investment, risk for your customers who want to have their internet on all the time and quick and fast. Um, so, so there is an intrinsic value in having a clear orbit. That's just, you know, business. And so now that we have more congested orbits and with lethal non-trackable debris, anything from one to 10 centimeters, almost a million pieces up there, plus the stuff we can see, that is going to increase the risk for your investors. So the way we see this, it is, it is a simple economic equation of what is the value of clean space for you? Um, and you work your way back from what am I willing to do to operate in a congested environment or a clear environment? Uh, you know, operators have had a good for the last 60 plus years. They haven't really had to worry about this, right? You just go up and, you know, if you're around 25 years, passively deorbiting, that's fine. You can check a box, say you're responsible. You know, we live in a modern space renaissance now. We should act like it. So we should have these practices in place to make sure we leave space looking better than when we got there. Uh, so all to say, who pays? Well, operators are already paying a little bit, little annoying costs, right? The, you know, your license is going to be scrutinized a little more these days if you have a lot of satellites or you don't have a good debris removal plan. So that costs lawyers to look at, costs you time, costs you know, late nights thinking about this. Um, you know, you might want to start um, investing in third-party SSA, right? So, so there's a cost there as well. You might need to hire people that know what they're talking about for, or, you know, okay, constructing the constellation and how to get the, you know, the right astrodynamicists in line to make sure your uh, constellation doesn't run into each other. That cost too. There are current costs today. They just push them in on other envelopes. If we could take those costs out and then add increasing congestion that's coming, right? So we've got satellites coming up, satellites coming down, satellites operating. What are those costs going to be? And so I feel that there needs to be a good economic study of not only what does it cost to put a docking plate and to remove your satellite um, at the end of life, whether or not, you know, it's functional, um, but also what, is the, what are the intrinsic costs right now of not doing anything, right? Look at the other side of the coin too. If we do nothing, what are we building in? Is it going to be more expensive to go to space? How much does insurance cost? There's already insurers starting to say backing off on, on in-orbit insurance or third-party liability insurance. We need to have the right structure in place to have a sustainable space future and to be able to leverage these orbits for fast internet, weather, and what have you. Remote sensing. So I know it's a roundabout answer <laughs> of who pays. If we want to drill down a little further, end of life services, putting a lightweight, inexpensive docking plate on your satellite does not cost a lot in this grand scheme of things. The service, if you can build into that and be open-minded to different business models, we're ready to talk. 
uh, about those various models and, and come up with a solution. So that's, I, I feel that, you know, in this, this company wouldn't have started if we didn't think there was an actual business case in the future. The active debris removal, that is removing pieces of debris that were never meant to be removed, upper stage rocket bodies and, and the like, that's costly, that's expensive, that's, that's risky, and they're mostly government. And so we feel the government has a responsibility and a role as the signatories of the Outer Space Treaty to do something about it, that action piece I was talking about. Um, so we're continuing to talk to, with governments. JAXA has a program for ADR. ESA has a program for ADR. The U.S. doesn't, not yet. And so we're actively talking to U.S. government of, you know, what does it take to start, you know, putting together a program, leveraging your commercial systems. There's a lot of goodness there of developing the tech to do ADR. There's a lot of goodness there for international cooperation. You want to do, you know, do a cooperative ADR program with, you know, your allies and partners. So um, this is something that, yeah, there are going to be, you know, entities that need to pay, but this is where we are now. This is what we've done to the Earth orbit. And we can, we can actually sustain it if we open up this market a little bit. Okay. I really like what you said about the operators probably having pushed off certain costs into other categories so that they're not seen as easily, uh, you know, or, or attributable to this area. And uh, if you do a study and pull those numbers together, they're going to add up to a big number. And, uh, and then the business case is right there. So that's very cool. Charity, who do you want to hear from? And what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, you know, again, my role is to ingest a lot of information, also help people become aware of the issue um, and, and talk to them as well. So who do I want to hear from? Anyone who wants to hear from me, essentially, um, you can get a hold of me. I, I can give you my email details uh, offline if you'd like. And uh, I, I don't know if I should you know, plug my Twitter or at C. Reden sure. or yeah. anything like that. Um, Go to astrostale.com. We have a couple of really cool videos that shows that concept of operations for our end of life demonstration later this year called LCD. And it will go up with its own client, if you will, client satellite. It'll detach and it's going to capture it tumbling. This is what I'm super excited about to see this mission go up. There's another mission um, for JAXA, as I mentioned, that will go up and inspect an upper stage rocket body. And of course, we're uh, really happy to talk to any of the constellation providers or operators, but how we can be a part of their business case for keeping space clean and sustainable. Awesome. And I'll put links to that, uh, that below so that folks can uh, easily go there. All right. My guest has been Charity Whedon, Vice President of Global Space Policy for Astroscale US. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you.
Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.